Uh, well, good evening, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, welcome, very warm welcome to the LSE uh, and um, on, um, on, uh, on the occasion of the second annual lecture of the, the, um, the Parliamentary and Health Service Ombudsman. My name's Simon Basto. I'm a member of the faculty at the School of Public Policy. Um, the, uh, the School of Public Policy is a, uh, uh, is a relatively new uh, institution launched a couple of weeks ago, but we um, we've, uh, have um, run for many years uh, master's level postgraduate education um, in public administration, master's of public administration and uh, executive training. And uh, I, I suppose at the core of the school, um, the, uh, the values of um, training current and future uh, policy makers uh, in a couple of things really. Firstly, to uh, understand the, uh, the, um, the, the use and, of, of evidence and analysis in policy making, but also uh, to um, uh, get them to understand really the, the craft of government and engaging with particularly difficult and complex issues and the interplay between the political, the, the, political, the, the cultural, the, the legal, um, the administrative and managerial, the technological and, and, and the human element in all of that. So, um, uh, the, the topic of tonight's discussion, I think, has all of these things in abundance, uh, and uh, we're, um, I'm, I'm very privileged to be able to chair the session tonight, and, and on behalf of the school, we're very pleased that we're able to host um, this annual lecture on behalf of the Ombudsman. Um, the title of, of the lecture tonight, Avoiding the Avoidable, Comparative Approaches to uh, Patient Safety. Um, I've, it's a great pleasure to introduce uh, the two speakers um, that uh, we'll, um, we'll hear from tonight. Um, I'll start with uh, Rob Behrens. Um, doesn't need much uh, introduction uh, as the current uh, ombudsman and um, anyone associated with the organization obviously uh, know that already. Um, but uh, Rob has a very illustrious career in um, not, uh, starting out in uh, the civil service uh, as a senior civil service and um, uh, followed a path uh, into uh, uh, the world of redress uh, around 2003, 2006, um, and became uh, the Complaints Commissioner for um, the Bar Standards Board, and then followed um, a path towards uh, uh, becoming the, uh, the, the uh, um, independent adjudicator, I should say, for higher education in the UK, and, and uh, it's widely um, uh, held that uh, Rob's work at, um, at the independent adjudicator was transformative and had a huge impact um, during his time there. And of course, uh, he was appointed uh, as uh, parliamentary and health service ombudsman uh, last uh, April, April 2017. Um, so uh, we'll, we'll hear from uh, Rob in a while. The, uh, the, the author of tonight's uh, lecture, uh, Sir Liam Donaldson, has been described as a, a global leader um, in areas of pa patient safety and um, uh, healthcare systems. And I think often the term global leader is much, much overused or lightly used, but it seems in this, this case it's uh, entirely appropriate um, for uh, many reasons. Um, I think you know, anyone following uh, themes of patient safety throughout the last few decades um, would, uh, would recognize um, uh, Sir Liam's name and reputation um, appointed as a chief medical officer in, in 1998, uh, in the, the early years of Blair, the Blair government, uh, he uh, served in that post until 2010. Um, under two prime ministers, I think I calculated about eight, seven or eight secretaries of state for health. 
uh, so uh, extreme resilience. Yeah. And throughout his term, he's, he's known for um, uh, some pretty good, uh, um, impactful uh, transformation changes uh, in the system, not least um, with uh, uh, the introduction of the smoking ban in public places towards the end of the 2000s. Um, and um, fundamentally, I think, putting in place machinery of government to, to deal with patient safety issues uh, in, uh, in, uh, across the British public sector. Um, since 2006, uh, Salim has been involved with the World Health Organization in, um, uh, in uh, highly impactful ways, uh, member of the executive board and uh, vice chairman, and, um, and also more recently the, um, the work he's done as, uh, as a global envoy for patient safety on behalf of the director general of the WHO and uh, leader of the, the World Alliance on Patient Safety as well. Um, so uh, a, a global leader in every sense tonight, and uh, it's a great pr uh, privilege to um, uh, invite him up to speak uh, in a few minutes. So the, the, um, the format tonight, what we'll do is uh, Salim will, will speak for about 40 minutes, uh, and, uh, and then Rob will um, make some remarks um, in response for about 20 minutes. And then we're very keen, I'm very keen to open it up to questions as soon as possible. So hopefully everyone will have a chance to ask questions um, and to interact. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think we should just get going. Uh, let me invite Salim Donaldson. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, um, Simon, and good evening, everybody. Um, the four main conclusions to my talk tonight... The first is that the scale of inadvertent harm in healthcare systems around the world, including the NHS, is high. Secondly, that the sources of harm, uh, whichever country you look at, are very similar. Thirdly, the methods available to reduce that harm are reasonably well established. And fourthly, the level of harm has been relatively unchanged for three decades or so. Let me start with one of the simplest ways in which somebody can come to harm. And I've chosen the, the, the most vulnerable of patients, the newborn baby. I'll be talking about a few examples of clinical cases this evening and all of them are in the public domain so I'm not disclosing any confidential information that hasn't already been reported in uh, coroner's inquests and, and, and other public documents. Um, this little baby Madison Emily Perry was born in a hospital in the United Kingdom. Um, she had a con serious congenital heart defect but one that would be uh, very treatable by modern um, cardiothoracic surgical techniques. Um, she uh, was treated with the full battery of uh, drugs and machinery that would be given to a child in this situation, but she was given one of the commonest drugs used in this sort of surgery and in other surgery as well, a blood thinning drug called heparin by an intravenous drip and she was prescribed um, 1,500 units of heparin by the junior doctor that was um, overseeing her care postoperatively. The prescription was written like this, using the standard 
international abbreviation for a unit. And it was interpreted like that. The final uh, symbol there, the U, was interpreted as another zero. And she was given 15,000 units of heparin and died. That error, or one like it, has occurred not commonly, but regularly, uh, both in this country and around the world since the 1960s. When I was um, Chief Medical Officer, I spent quite a bit of time on the patient safety strand of my work, and as Simon said, I also did public health and various other things. But um, one of the things I did do was that I met victims of harm, both patients and families who'd suffered harm, and then I was accused by the civil service of micromanaging. That was the term that was used. I didn't consider it as micromanagement, as I was reasonably good, I thought, at strategy, but I did believe and still believe very strongly that understanding the granularity of situations in healthcare is very important if you want to try and uh, do anything about it at the strategic level. So I pictured myself in my older form here, more up to date than some of the photographs that are used in conference um, material. But what I was doing here was I was going back to some of my old files. I did this a few weeks ago. And um, what I used to do was I would spot uh, cases of uh, harm or deaths due to healthcare in the media. And there were rather a lot of them. And then I would um, ask to speak to the family or relative if they were willing to talk to me about their experience. And so I just put some of the headlines in my old file here up on the screen. And I've got one point in particular to make about this. So the, these are the sorts of things that you still see in the, particularly the tabloid newspapers on a regular basis. Here's a six-year-old boy in 2009, one of the old uh, sets of cuttings I pulled out, killed by a tumour, boy sent home eight times. So that was a case of a misdiagnosed brain tumour. A mother died after consulting eight general practitioners in four days, unrecognised blood poisoning or septicemia. Doctors ignored dying boy burned by a cup of tea. Again, a case of sepsis uh, missed and, and leading to death. Blunder led to mother dying just hours after giving birth. In this case, an intrauterine hemorrhage, a common cause of death in low-income countries in the world. And um, hospital that forgot to tell a nurse she had can cancer, delay leading to metastatic cancer. There's a significant number of people every year in this country and other <coughs> health countries who have a poor prognosis of cancer, not because of the aggressiveness of their disease, but because their test results are lost or not followed up properly. So I make those, uh, give you those headlines as an example of the, of the granularity of problems that exist, but I do so for another purpose as well, and that is to say that these things are still occurring, reported in our media today, and they are no longer regarded as a scandal. We're, we, as a public, as a consumers of the media, are largely in inured to those sorts of things. We may feel uh, a, a short period of sadness as we read it, but they, with a few exceptions, are not reasons for the health service facing up to the need for transformation.
I have a second story. I've got three altogether. And this is one that I've particularly majored on in my um, communication on patient safety. And I show it for a number of reasons. The first reason I used to start showing it is because it's a classic, it's an example of a classic accident in healthcare. Um, everything that could have gone wrong went wrong. Just the sorts of things that would bring a plane down. Multiple factors conspiring to bring harm and death in this particular example to the patient. But as I've been telling it, it's almost as if the story has got a life of its own because it has given new information which I hadn't expected whenever I started telling it. It's the story of a 16-year-old boy, Wayne Jowett. He was a teenager uh, living in Nottingham, England. And he was suffering from acute leukemia, which when I was a junior doctor, probably about 5% of children survived. Uh, now, something like 90% of children survive. So a major therapeutic triumph for um, medicine, um, at least in, in the developed parts of the world. And Wayne was a rebellious teenager, so his mother told me when I met her in my office in London. And he um, was unwilling to go up for his treatments. He had them regularly. And the only person that had influence, uh, the major influence on most rebellious teenagers was his grandmother. And she persuaded him to go up to the hospital. And they went up together. And the staff were very, very keen that he shouldn't miss his treatment. But he didn't have an appointment. So he was taken out of sequence. And as some of you who have studied accidents and safety have well, know that is one big risk to be out of sequence in, in a procedural sense. But he needed two sorts of injections. He needed a drug, one drug given into his vein, an intravenous injection, and another drug given into his spinal fluid, an intrathecal injection, a standard treatment in the chemotherapy for leukemia. And you will see that one of the syringes has a clear warning on it. Vincristine is the drug. And the warning on it is not for intrathecal use. In other words, this is the one that should be given into the vein. Definitely not into the spinal fluid because the warning is there. What happened was that Wayne um, was given his procedure and to cut a very long story short, he was given the intravenous drug intrathecally. He became paralyzed and over a period of about five days in the intensive care unit, he died. Quite a painful death. When I talked to his mother and father and grandmother in my office in London, um, his mother told me that when they went up to the clinical area, having been called to the hospital, they saw his regular pediatrician who'd been looking after him, who said there's been an error, but um, we think he's going to be all right. He'll be um, taken to the theater and it'll be washed out of his spinal fluid and he should be okay. 
Um, they then encountered another doctor that they didn't know who said to them, prepare yourself for the worst, your son's going to die. And his mother told me as thing, the situation developed, he went to theater, he had it washed out, it didn't make any difference, his condition was deteriorating. And the worst part of it was that the first question he asked her when he regained consciousness in, the, in intensive care was, Mum, am I going to die? And she told me that this was the worst moment of her life to tell her son that he was going to die. Now, Wayne had this error perpetrated on him for a number of reasons. The two syringes, as you can see, could easily be confused. They came to the clinical area in the same plastic bag. They were supposed to be transported separately. A senior doctor was due, supposed to come down to supervise the procedure, but he was telephoned and a post-it note left on his desk, which he didn't see, so the supervisor didn't uh, come down. The two junior doctors who gave the in injection, one of them um, had done one before and one had seen one before, and they were on, on an induction period not supposed to treat anybody, but because they were so worried that he hadn't had his appointments, they stepped forward as, uh, uh, if you like, um, good citizens, clinical citizens, to try and help out. And then there was a mix-up and the wrong drug was given. And when I saw this case originally, I asked a, not a Royal College to investigate, but a an accident investigator who did previously investigated rail crashes and things of that sort. And he did something which is never done in NHS investigations. It may be now, but I don't think so. He reconstructed the incident, which is a very, at the time, a novel approach, and his reports in the public domain. Uh, but he found um, 30 systems failures things that came together, including some of the ones I've mentioned, uh, to kill the boy. Now, a very tragic case, and at the time, there would, had been 50 in the medical literature, one of which had, um, uh, one of which I've told you about, in this particular case, the junior doctor concerned was put in jail for manslaughter, and then there'd been another case a couple of years earlier in, in a hospital about 40 miles away from this one, and the doctor had been quietly counseled behind the scenes and allowed to carry on with his practice. So some, some of the patient safety literature talks about the second victim. Our principal concern is, of course, for the patient that's harmed, but also there's also harm for, for the staff involved. I'm going to show you a, a short a video clip now. Um, this is something which has been put together and has been shown very widely around the world as an educational tool. And I, I'm, it's a very short clip. But I've got one request of you as you watch it, which is um, the great... Uh, rock guitarist Keith Richard was once asked when he's on stage doing his guitar solos what does he think what's going through his mind and he said I don't think I feel and I'd like you as you see the doctors here or the patients 
to try and feel how they might be feeling, either the patient or the doctor in this situation. And then let's just um, go through it. I've got to just press a separate button to get this going, but then... Is that okay? Interesting. Two milligrams in two mil. So I must have seen that a hundred times and it still sends shivers down my spine. Maybe it's because I can imagine myself in, in that clinical situation. But there's a wider point here that this is obviously a specific a reconstruction of the situation I've shown you. But most of our education is based on technical factors, knowledge, of course, these days, communication and softer skills are taught. But that sort of, when we know from our evaluations, that sort of granularity explained to people or shown to people in that way has an enormous impact. And students around the world have seen it. And the anecdotal feedback I've had is that some have said, we dedicate our practice to stopping this sort of thing from happening. So there's an angle there as well, which is wider than perhaps the specific example. But I said my, my mother was a great um, Agatha Christie fan. And she used to say to me, Liam, she said there's a great one here, it's got a twist in the tail. And I don't know whether you remember that old expression, but I never had time to read the books, but she was always pressing them on me with that uh, that request that I should read them because of the twist in the tale. This story's got a twist in the tale. I've told you about the one example. Fifty in the medical literature at the time that we first looked of these Vincristine errors. And then um, one week we heard that there'd been a hundred more cases. So 50 over, over 30 years worldwide documented. And then in one week the number went up to 150. Can you think why? Well, what happened was that a Chinese drug manufacturing company was manufacturing these two drugs 
on the same side, the intravenous one and the intrathecal one, and there was a contamination, you know, rather like peanuts can contaminate other foods, and as a result of which, there was an epidemic of these intrathecal errors in, in China. And this was a company that was exporting to the West, but these particular drugs weren't exported, but most of their other products were. Had they been exported, it would have not just been an epidemic in China of 100 cases, it would have been a worldwide pandemic. So for something that started off as a, a rarity, the upstream implications of this, which we would never have thought of as a causation, would um, have what did cause a catastrophe in China. And then there was a second twist in the tale of this story. A pharmacist working in America, hearing about the work we'd done in England on this, sent me a journal article from a neurological journal where, for a rare neurological condition, the authors recommended treatment with intrathecal vincristine, completely unknown to them, which is well known uh, in, in the patient safety literature of the toxic effects of it. And they recommended that as a treatment, and then the, draw, the journal redacted it and, and withdrew it. So that simple story of the classic accident, 50 cases, showed it had much more to tell us about the pervasiveness of risk in healthcare. And my final um, example, before I start to sum up with some points, this gentleman, Morris Murphy, was a um, very talented musician. He played on the soundtrack of Hollywood films, um, like Star Wars and Harry Potter. He went into a London hospital and for relatively routine treatment, and he didn't come out alive. Not because of his disease, but because he had a particular procedure which is quite common in hospitals, which is the feeding of somebody through a nasogastric tube, threaded down through their nose, into their stomach, whilst they're not able to take food by mouth, and then uh, feeding fluid is injected through, down into the stomach. But before you can do that, you need to check that the tube's in the right place. And there are standard ways of doing that. So Mr. Murphy was in hospital, and my account, which is going to be brief, but my account is drawn directly from the coroner's inquest. So when I quote, I'm quoting verbatim. Um, what happened was the tube was placed, an x-ray was taken to confirm it, and the order was given that the tube was in the right place and that the patient should be fed. A junior doctor was supervising the ward that night, came on his rounds and found that he hadn't been fed and said to the ner junior nurse who was on the ward, um, why hasn't he been fed? And she said, I'm uneasy that this tube may not be in the right position, and I would did, didn't want to feed him, thinking that, my uneasiness about it. He put the x-ray, looked at it again, said the tube's correctly placed, please feed the patient, and I will come back in a couple of hours uh, and check on his progress. He came back in a couple of hours, 
and the patient still hadn't been fed. So, and this is the verbatim quote, the junior doctor said to the nurse, you don't have a brain to understand what I said, feed the patient. The patient was fed, the fluid went into his lungs and he died. So, when we think about these things, and I could have done this for the Wayne Jowett case, the very celebrated metaphor that's used right across the whole field of safety in all industries, invented by an academic, a now retired academic in Manchester University, James Reason, and it's the Swiss cheese metaphor. And his idea is that in a well-protected system, safety-wise, the slices of the cheese should be solid. So there should be barriers protecting the patient or the airline passenger or whatever it might be. And I've given some examples here. So there should be strong procedures. The staff should be very professional. There should be a team culture, good training, good communication. In this particular case, if anything goes wrong, the, sweet, the, chi, the, the cheese moves from being slices of cheddar to slices of Swiss cheese and the holes and the vulnerabilities start to uh, line up. So in this case, the gaps in the defences were that procedural guidelines weren't, weren't followed and there was an inappropriate attitude, as you heard, and hierarchical attitudes. Now, in any industry, uh, safety sensitive industry, hierarchies are very, very, very bad. They're bad in healthcare, people frightened to speak up. There have been planes that have flown into mountains, notably Korean Airlines uh, during the 1970s, where the hierarchical attitude in the cockpit meant that the junior pilot, even though he could see the plane was flying into a mountain, didn't feel able to challenge the pilot. And so in healthcare, just the same. If a junior nurse can't challenge a junior doctor, or a junior doctor can't challenge a consultant, even when they see things are going wrong, that is a bad culture, but it's too common in healthcare. <coughs> and then obviously there were other features as well in this particular case. Has it helped this death? Well, there's been some improvement. But in the period after this gentleman died, there have been 95 further incidents in the NHS and 32 deaths. So things have not necessarily got any better. Little has been learned out of such an incident. And when, when we think about safety, the word, the jargon systems is usually used, but essentially when something goes wrong. It's due to human error, but usually human error that's provoked by something in the system. Either a machine that's difficult to understand the calibration, two medicines with different effects that are packaged in the same colors and the same packaging, all sorts of reasons why. Um, and recent study in the NHS showed that 200 million errors in medication use every year in the NHS, 200 million. And it's because of these interactions between people, machines, procedures, in often a physical and social environment that's very complex and fast moving. Now, our chairman mentioned the 
question of resilience. It's a really good term, and it's where a lot of modern thinking is going in healthcare. It's about trying to build organizations and procedures and services which are resistant <coughs> to harm. These are all the incidents um, that are reported in the NHS every year. This is a, a recent um, uh, cumulative uh, list of them. You can see that the deaths and severe harm at, are at the top of the pyramid. Those are the only ones that are ever analyzed. Now that's different to other high-risk industries because in other high-risk industries one of the wisdoms is that you learn a lot from the things that went wrong but nobody, nothing really, nobody was harmed. And there's more of them and they're interesting. So what I thought I'd do, and I did this about a year ago, I've pulled out from, a, from this bottom category a no harm incident report. And this was made by a nurse. And it goes like this. Commenced the night shift short staff. This is verbatim. Doctor in charge was a locum, newly qualified and unable to administer intravenous medications. Registered nurse is an agency nurse, only saw two out of ten patients, department overfull with many patients on trolleys, shift was unsafe, unsafe, with reduced numbers of staff who were inexperienced and lacking skills. So that's a no harm incident. Now, there's a very nice book written about resilience in all high-risk industries called Managing the Unexpected by um, Kathleen Sutcliffe and Carl Wyke. And they have a number of criteria for a, a resilient organization. And one of the ones that I like most of all is expressed like this. It's uh, a high-resilience high organization, a safe organization, is one which makes a strong response to a weak signal of failure. So in my view, that is a weak signal of failure because it's right at the bottom of the pyramid, nobody would ever look at it. But if you were on top of your game in safety and resilience, you would be responding strongly to that. If I read that before I went into hospital, I wouldn't go near the place. And I wouldn't have any of my... A nurse is saying it's not safe to go there, but yet people are happily going there. Not, I'm totally ignorant about the fact that reports like this are being made. So if we want to do something about it, the experience from other industries is that you get the greatest payoff if you can come up with solutions that, that are top of that slide. So things like education and giving people guidelines and information do improve things, but they're relatively weak they make a relatively weak impact compared to standardization, checklists, and things of that sort. So that's the basic, that's what the evidence shows. So if we take a, an industry that's been enormously successful compared to healthcare, the airlines have got safer year on year on year on year. Something like if you fly on a scheduled airline tomorrow, your chances of dying are something like 1 in 12 million. 
research shows that if your chances of being admitted to a hospital, your chances of being subject to a very serious error are one in 300. Not a bad comparison, is it? One in 300 versus one in 12 million. But the reason that these other industries have done so well is that they do things differently. Things that other industries, like the airline industry, does um, differently, they know their risks. I've asked numerous clinicians and managers if they can talk to me about their risks, and they then usually start on about the financial risk things that are discussed at the board meetings. Very few clinicians have a good understanding and can scope the risks in their subject area. They investigate much better in a way that results in learning. That's the test of a good investigation. Does it give us material that we can action and will prevent the same thing, the same harm happening to the next patient? They tend to use standard operating procedures a lot more. That's an anathema to medicine that doctors don't like being controlled. I'm a doctor. I know how they think. But standard operating procedures would probably save quite a lot of lives, but they're not generally used. And if we had a slogan for describing how we approach education of health uh, professionals in this country, it would be educate in silos and practice in teams. Ironic, but true. That is what we do. And yet we expect people to work in a team that you would see. I mean, the, the beauty of watching the Formula One teams or many other teams, it's beautiful to watch them. They come together instinctively. They've been trained. They know how to interact. That in healthcare, the, the team work works reasonably well, but not to the same level that you would achieve if you were training more effectively in that way. And then um, the use of simulators, which to some extent are being used now in surgery. But this is the flight, if you remember a few years ago, coming in from Beijing, and the, uh, the vice, um, the uh, co-pilot was called um, Coward, Captain Coward. But he wasn't a coward because he managed to land the 777 in very, very difficult circumstances. And like Solly Sullenberger, the miracle on the Hudson, they were both asked, what did you think when you were flying in? And they both said, we felt we were in a simulator. And that's why they landed the plane safely. And um, so the opportunities there to train for accidents is hardly ever done in healthcare, but the technology is making that possible. So if we are, and I'm going very strategic now, and looking, and I've just got a couple more slides to show and then I'm finished. If we were looking at, at a very high level, the things that would drive this safety agenda into the right place, I think we'd be looking for <coughs> compassion. We'd be looking for the sort of reaction to some of the patient stories that um, you've seen that you feel tonight, and I feel, even as a presenter, you would want that compassion to be there in every healthcare, every corner of the healthcare system every day. You would want passion 
you would want people saying, yeah, we're going to go for it. We're going to beat the airline industry. We're going to show we can improve year on year. That passion isn't there for a variety of reasons. It's not part of the uh, education. It's not part of the leadership profile of people. And then obviously there are technical things, investigative methods and other improvement methods which would come into play as well. A few years ago, um, I was sitting in the bath in London, which is something I don't do very often these days, but it was a good place for creative thought. And my wife was out for the night, and I was prohibited from using her Chanel Number no. 5 bubble bath. But on this occasion, as she was out, I managed to take a small sample of it and get a nice bubble bath to promote the creativity. She didn't, my grandmother used to mark the whiskey bottle, but she, she didn't do that with it, so I think I probably got away with it. But I came up with this little dream, daydream, which was that on the tarmac somewhere in the world, there was sitting a Boeing 757, and in its pre-flight engineering inspection, the engineer noticed that an orange-coloured wire had come off the housing and he or she would obviously replace it, solder it back and check it and everything. But my daydream, and I think it's more like reality, is it probably wouldn't have ended there. There would have been a, small, a, a worldwide, a global alert and all engines of that type would have been checked. So I call that the orange wire test because it was an orange-coloured wire. And there is no way in which healthcare systems around the world are anywhere near passing the orange wire test. Even hospitals in the same town don't learn from each other. And in my work with the World Organization, Health Organization only last year, I sp spoke to a, a woman from South Korea whose son had been killed by an intrathecal error. This is 10 years later than Wayne Jowett, after numerous articles and guidance have been sent out worldwide, and the physicians in the hospital concerned were not aware of this particular risk. So back to, I mentioned James Reason, and this was one of the nice things that he said to sum up a lecture like this, either we manage human error, or human error will manage us. Thank you. First of all, uh, thank you, LSE. Uh, thank you, Simon, for hosting this second uh, Ombudsman lecture. Thank you, Sir Liam, for such a thoughtful presentation. Everyone here is grateful to you for your contributions to patient safety over the years, not only as Chief Medical Officer, but as your role in the World Health Organization. As part of my ambition to reform the National Ombudsman Service in the UK, I appointed Sir Liam to act as the independent advisor to review the way we, as the National Ombudsman, use clinical advice in our casework. 
And this big study is chaired by Sir Alex Allen, who's in the audience today. And it's a study which has involved a lot of consultation. It's still in preparation. It's too early to announce what it's going to conclude. But it's part of a two-pronged approach to make sure that we rise to the challenge which has just been described. The first prong in the process was to commission an independent expert review of the Ombudsman Service conducted by uh, the National Ombudsman for Ireland, Peter Tyndall, who completed his work in November and that has been published and is on our web website. What I know from both studies is that we have a very long way to go to get things right. There are certain things that we, as the National Ombudsman Service, can do, but structurally, if we're going to rise to the challenge which Liam has set out, we will need legislative change to change the nature of how we engage with complainants and with patients in order to be able to deliver on the three elements that he describes, Liam describes, compassion, passion and technique. We're campaigning for that, though the present circumstances make it very unlikely that we're going to get reform very quickly. But as the independent ombudsman service, the challenge for us is to deal with the many thousands of complaints that we get from people across the country and that we're different from other ombudsman schemes around Europe and in the world. In that, there is a heavy bias in the caseload that we have towards health service issues and away from the original conception of the service, which was to deal with parliamentary issues. This is a problem because it means that we do not have international counterparts to rely upon in order to benchmark ourselves and to be able to make suggestions about how we can go forward. So that's the first thing. Our evidence base is large, but we are untypical of other ombudsman services. We received last year 25,000 complaints about the NHS, and we had inquiries from 123,000 people who spoke to our intake team on the telephone. The independent review conducted by Peter Tyndall found that we do an important job in giving advice to these 100,000 people about what they have to do in order to attempt to resolve their complaint. But because of the absence of a common portal which leads one path to the Ombudsman Service, we're dealing with a vast majority of people who have complaints that we are not able to deal with because they are either premature, because we're a classic service and we can only look at issues once they've been looked at uh, by the body and jurisdiction, or because they are outside our remit. This is very frustrating, not only to our people on the telephone, but also to citizens 
who don't have a particularly good understanding of what an ombudsman does or is, and who expect us to be able to deal with the issues that they are raising. This is a challenge. I know from my recent visits to Europe that the public recognition rate for the National Ombudsman Service in countries like Austria and the Czech Republic, because of their ability and the powers that they have and their access to state television and so on, is over 70%. Whereas for one reason or another, and I'm not particularly interested in going into that now, the public recognition rate of my organization is less than 20%. So it's not easy to be able to launch a public campaign and encourage people to come to you when, in all likelihood, we're not going to be able to help them in the first place. And in the second place, they don't really understand who we are because of the perverse name, Parliamentary and Health Service Ombudsman, uh, and because they don't understand the concept of what an ombudsman is. It's hard to be able to map a way forward when there is only one other European ombudsman service that deals with health service complaints in the way that we have to do. So only outside the United Kingdom, in Spain, is there a systematic look at health service complaints for us to be able to uh, interrogate what they do and how they do it. That makes it difficult because the mandate that we have been given gives us a broad remit to look at maladministration. But as is well known, we specifically have a remit, a responsibility to look at clinical issues and clinical judgments in the health service. And I'm pleased that we were required to reform our clinical standard by the Court of Appeal. And I'm pleased that we've consulted with stakeholders and with members of the public to make sure that we get the clinical standard which is now in place. Now, I want to say two or three other things before sitting down. The first is that there is a connection between patient safety and complaints handling. But they are not the same thing. They overlap, but they are not the same thing. And in my view, complaints handling has come into disrepute over the years because it's been used as a way for people to have access to redress in a way that is not appropriate for issues of patient safety which have been described tonight. And therefore, I, with caution and a degree of scepticism, welcome the government's approach to making sure that alongside complaints handling, we have a separate but related way of looking at patient safety now through the health and safety investigation branch which is attempting to deliver many of the things that Liam was talking about in his talk. Now, it does that in a way which is not compatible in itself with complaints handling because it provides a safe space 
which effectively means that no one gets blamed individually for what happened, and therefore there is no individual redress for those who are interested in the outcome. But it does mean that the kinds of learning which are described in Liam's talk and operate in the aircraft industry will be available and are beginning to be available to the health service. In my view, it would be a profound mistake to try and elaborate on that system by saying that it should apply to all issues in the health service, that it should become the main redress mechanism. And indeed, the draft legislation makes it clear that HSET will be a body in jurisdiction so that we will have the opportunity of looking at some of the issues that it's dealing with and we won't be silenced by the safe space. So we want to work with HSET and I have uh, every confidence that we'll be able to do that but we have to understand that we're doing complementary but separate things. There's also been pressure from government to reform the Ombudsman system in recent years in a way which I think is extremely unhelpful to the agenda that Liam Donaldson is talking about. There's been a dumbing down of the concept of the Ombudsman to become effectively a consumer rights body which is going to provide redress to people who have issues with the way in which they've been sold goods or financial services. But that altogether ignores the critical role of the Ombudsman, which I fight for because I believe it's absolutely right, to be able, if we do it properly, to call public bodies <coughs> to account in a way that citizens can see that there will be change as a result of changes that are made. And in the last two years, I am pleased that PHSO has published insight reports on issues around mental health, around eating disorders, and next week in Parliament on whistleblowing in the NHS, which is a very big issue. And we've done that in a way which contributes to the learning and the policy development, which is essential that an ombudsman contributes to if they're going to live up to the name that we're talking about. A just culture, a non-hierarchical health service, has to emphatically improve the way it treats whistleblowers if patient safety is going to operate effectively. And I have to say that one of the things that has shocked me as ombudsman is the number of clinicians who have been to my office in private and have said, I would like to make a complaint, but I know that if I do, I will lose my career, and therefore I can't do it. Now, because we do not have, as 75% of world ombudsmen have, the power of own investigation to be able to decide what we investigate, that means if people are not prepared to complain, there's nothing that I can do about it, and I think that is profoundly wrong in terms of public policy. So I want to end by saying this, that I accept that communication is absolutely at the heart of what we should be doing, and that 
PHSO as an organisation has not got this right emphatically in previous years. And everything that we are doing now is about improving the quality of the training available to our case handlers to make sure that they're capable of dealing with bereavement, trauma, distress, despair, which is part and parcel of dealing with the National Health Service. And unless we can do that, and unless we can live up to the standards which Scott Morrish, who is here today, has talked about in his contributions to these questions, about taking seriously and really listening to and acting on the views of people <laughs> who are distressed or are bereaved, then we're not going to be able to live up to the proper standard of what an ombudsman should be doing. And it's our responsibility to deliver that training for the people who have the difficult task of dealing with people on a daily basis. So my last point is this, that in the United Kingdom and in the health service, I'm constantly told by people like Sean Linton that there is over-regulation. Too many regulators, too many bodies setting out standards. That may be true, but it's what we have at the moment. The critical task of regulators and ombudsmen is to make sure that we work together without losing our independence to address the issues that one body alone cannot address. Thank you very much. Thank you, uh, Salim and Rob. Okay, well, I'm very keen that we get the microphone out to the room. Um, it's a very nicely shaped discussion, this, in that we have the front end and the, the issues of patient safety and the sort of back end, the investigation of failure and um, redress processes. And it seems to me that it's a good opportunity to investigate how the two can potentially be integrated in, uh, in constructive ways, because in many ways they both face the same challenges, um, you know, cultural change, uh, legal constraints, uh, communication challenges, and so on. So let's just get the microphone out there, and I'm sure there are many questions waiting to be asked. We'll take uh, three questions as clusters, and then we can go with that. Hi, I'm Mick King. I'm the Local Government and Social Care Ombudsman, so I deal with very similar issues in the social care space in particular. Um, as Rob's highlighted, as Ombudsman, we pride ourselves on not just resolving complaints in a transactional way, but trying to draw out lessons that are going to um, drive service improvement and to make recommendations to improve services. And I just wonder if you had any observations back to us about how our decisions land with in the health service um, or, or in, in, in social care and, and whether we actually achieve what we want to achieve or whether you can give us any pointers on how we can frame our feedback in a way that's going to uh, link into the kind of cultural issues that you've identified. Hi, uh, my name is Dalla Reynolds and I'm uh, from PHSO The Facts and I put a complaint into the Ombudsman, uh, so I'm a service user. Um, we've heard from Sir Liam that the same mistakes keep happening again and again, and it's kind of normalized now. We don't even consider it to be a scandal, which is shocking. 
And we've also had a health service ombudsman for about 25 years now. Um, so I, I want to ask, uh, you know, why isn't the learning happening? Why aren't we sharing the learning from the reports? And, and the point I'd li really like to make, that following up from what Mr. Barron said, is um, I, I feel that he undervalued the importance of personal redress. Personal redress is vital if you are a complainant. You cannot move on with your life without personal redress. Could we not have personal redress and learning in the investigation reports that are disseminated out into the NHS? I don't see why you can't have the learning inside the investigation report. Why isn't that happening? Thank you. Thank you. I should say yes. Could you say your name <coughs> and where you're from? Thank you. My name's um, Matthew Lee. I'm on the board of the Medical Defence Union, and we were involved in defending the case that, that um, Sir Liam mentioned, the medical manslaughter case. And we continue to defend doctors actively every month almost. We're seeing another investigation that, that is on the, on the verge of moving towards a police investigation, and, and several times each year we're defending doctors with medical manslaughter cases. And there are high-level cases, uh, even currently, where doctors are going to prison because they've made mistakes. And I've been at the MDU, I think, for 19 years now, and I've only seen one of those cases where I think it's actually been the, the doctor has been cult, sufficiently culpable individually without system errors around them um, to, to justify that type of investigation. So I'd, I'd like to ask if there's a better way of investigating the actions of the healthcare team um, short of actually pushing forward with medical manslaughter investigations in the view of the panel. Would you like to respond to that? Uh Thank you. Well, I think they're great questions. Thank you. I make sound like an American, don't I? They're very good questions. Thank you very much. Um, I, I think I, the first two questions, I can't give you a, a recommendation for how learning and feedback could take place effectively, but I can sort of deepen the observations on why it doesn't happen. My observations on, you, you would think that when somebody died and there was a clear-cut explanation for it and it was to do with harm and safety and errors, that that source of risk would be closed down immediately. That's what would happen in many other sectors. But it doesn't happen in healthcare, not just in this country, but around the world. In fact, the way in which learning takes place is more, much more akin to the good practice side of medicine. If you, if you study all the evidence on how improvement occurs in the treatment of hypertension, diabetes, <laughs> things like that, it happens slowly and incrementally. Some people adopt it, some don't. Um, over time, it gets a bit better, but a very, very slow. And my observation on safety is it's much more, the learning's much more akin to that than the, if you like, the safety notice that would go up anywhere else. Now, that's bad, but you can, you can say it's bad, but it's something to do with the deep-seated cultural attitude, values, Something like and I remember vividly when I was chief medical officer, I used to like trying to get these um, control of these situations. And we had, um, uh, at one stage, we, we discovered that 
there were two sets of anaesthetic machines in the country. And to cut a long story short, the old-fashioned boils machines, there was a, a way of turning them on and off which was quite high risk and patients had died as a result of it. And it was a very simple safety measure. We basically, I persuaded the Secretary of State to send out an immediate notice saying that the, all the machines had to be replaced and it wasn't that expensive. It took nearly two years for that to happen. And I, in the end, I as chief medical officer, I was ringing up chief um, executive officers and saying to them, you've seen the notice. Um, and I, I used a form of words that recently Arnold Schwarzenegger used about Donald Trump, you know, as a result of the meeting he had with Putin. I said, what's the matter with you? You know, and um, it's bizarre. And that, that was such an easy technical fix, much easier than some of the things that you would be recommending, which are to do with behavioral and cultural change. <laughs> so learning in safety is much more akin to the sorts of learning that occurs in other fields rather than in other fields of safety, if you see what I mean. And then, okay, so the, the second thing is, on this question of um, blame, I wrote an editorial for the BMJ last year saying that I didn't think that doctors should ever be accused of manslaughter or very, very rarely. I think the blame-free culture is sometimes misunderstood. I think there are rare cases where people have behaved willfully neglecting when colleagues have said, no, that's dangerous, you shouldn't do it, and they've done it anyway. I see no problem about putting them in jail but they would be great rarities. And ironically, in the case you mentioned in, in the Wayne Jowett case, the doctor was convicted on manslaughter. We'd lined up James Reason and Brian Toft, who did the report. All of them were going to tell the court this was a systems failure. And the doctor was so stressed by the process, if you remember, that he pleaded guilty. And that was why he ended up in jail. And so the second victim side of things is terrible for, for people that are involved in those cases. Do you want to say something in response to Mick's question? Because that would be helpful. I thought I'd answered that. I, I think that um, your recommendations go into the mix. They're not seen as anything special or exceptional. The most severe warnings are when the coroners send these, I've forgotten, Section 40 letters warning. Even those don't have an impact, and those are kind of draconian warnings and very seldom have an impact. So it's, so it's back to this. The NHS is both overloaded with things it's told to do and inured to the risks of, uh, of ignoring them. How about uh, Donna's question on personal regress? Yeah, I think she's wrong. Um, I, I do not think that an ombudsman properly operating uh, undervalues personal redress. The issue for me is the evidence base that is required of an impartial decision maker to come to a view, which is not the same thing as respecting the uh, strongly held view of the complainant. If we are not impartial between uh, the complainant and the body in jurisdiction. We are not properly an ombudsman. In my view, the notion of a people's 
ombudsman is a contradiction in terms. That's not what ombudsmen do. But that's not to say that we shouldn't be passionate in pursuing issues once we've found that there is maladministration. So where I, I have a, a more sympathetic view to the point that she makes is that learning, in order to make an impact, you have to have certain elements present. The first is you have to be transparent. <coughs> if you are not transparent, if you're not able, through uh, custom or practice or law, to be able to publish everything that you find in a particular case, then you're not going to have the opportunity of embarrassing the body in jurisdiction when they uh, say they're not going to be compliant. And I'm clear that the moral authority of the ombudsman is overplayed. In my experience, it's very often the threat of publicity which will do damage to the reputation of the body in jurisdiction, which will be the thing which causes the body in, in jurisdiction uh, to move. And I have a lot of experience of saying to uh, bodies who are not compliant, if you don't comply, we're going to publish. And as soon as you say that, they change their view very quickly because they don't want the publicity associated with it. And the final point comes back to this. If we don't have the rigor of the evidence base associated with making the recommendation. If we are jolly amateurs uh, expressing uh, a view about what might have happened, we become irrelevant. And that's why Liam's review is so important, because we need to make sure that on clinical issues, uh, we have the competence in dealing with complex issues without losing our independence. And that is very difficult to do, but it is achievable. Questions? Yeah. Uh, so Steve Powis, National Medical Director of the NHS. Uh, just a few comments and then maybe a question to Liam. So, so on the section, section 28 reports, prevention of future deaths reports, not section 40. But um, so I, one of my jobs is to sign off the responses to all the section 28 reports that come into NHS England and I can absolutely assure everybody that I take that responsibility very seriously and I read both the coroner's reports and the responses that we provide to the coroners uh, with um, in great detail before I sign them off. Uh, and only this morning uh, uh, we were undertaking a thematic review of those that I've signed off since we started in January because I'm very keen that not only do we send, uh, we sign off the detail of those individual responses, but we understand the themes that are coming through from the ones that are sent to NHS England so that we can absolutely assure ourselves that in our patient safety strategy and in our national work on patient safety, uh, which Aidan Fowler is leading as the new national uh, patient safety director, uh, who will be part of the new medical joint medical directorate between NHS England and a NHS Improvement that we we understand what those reports are telling us thematically and we are ensuring that we are focusing as a system uh, on interventions and programs that will address those. So that was the first thing. So they don't just go and sit somewhere. They do get looked at and they do get taken very seriously. Uh, so my other comment, I know the nasogastric case that you uh, highlighted very well because I was the medical director at the Royal Free uh, when that occurred at the Royal Free and I led the investigation uh, and the learning afterwards. And I can again assure you that a huge amount of learning 
and a huge amount of uh, work to change our standard operating procedures went in after that. Uh, I won't go into the detail other than to say nasogastric tubes are a wicked problem uh, and they're one of the things where I, uh, what I would love is a technical solution that would give us a technical answer uh, to when a tube is in the stomach because the root cause of that case as you alluded to was a misinterpreted um, chest x-ray um, and one of the changes that we made at the Royal Free after that was to insist that x-rays um, for nasogastric tube insertion could not be interpreted by junior doctors, they had to be interpreted by radiologists. Uh, and of course radiologists can misinterpret uh, nasogastric tube insertion, particularly where there are difficult anatomical issues around uh, the stomach, and I have seen that as well. Um, it's also the case that um, probably when you and I trained, what you used to do is put air down the tube and listen to the stomach. Uh, that's long gone. We tend to use pH now as a, a way of uh, knowing that the tube through an aspiration. And if there are cases in the literature where a pH above six um, uh, has been uh, docu um, sorry, pH below six has been documented and the, the tube still wasn't in the stomach. So it is a very difficult problem to solve. Uh, only to highlight that some of those difficult. But the question I was going to ask you is about spread, because I absolutely agree with you that one of the things that we that we need to do much better at is spread learning from one organization uh, to the next. Uh, and that is, I think there's a whole host of issues, including the cultural issues and the human factors issues. But I just wanted to ask Liam, in all the years that he's been doing this, um, what are the most effective methodologies for spread, for rapid spread of learning across organizations? And what can we learn from other countries in your experience? Good evening. I'm, I'm Scott Hislop. I'm one of the principal national investigators with Healthcare Safety Investigation Branch. I, I come from a different background uh, and maybe bring a different perspective. But I'd be interested to hear from Suleyam what do you think the levers are that we can really pull on within the healthcare to change some of the deep-rooted culture that is probably ingrained from the most junior doctors coming in or the junior nurses to change a system that is quite resistive. Yeah, we go. Any, any more immediate questions? Yeah, sorry. Um, Alex Robertson from the Parliamentary and Health Service Ombudsman. I mean, Liam, I took from what you were saying that the problems in approaching safety are probably not as particular to our health system, but to health systems across the world. And I wondered if you have any, any examples of countries or health systems which have got it much better than we do. Yeah, I'll do them in the reverse order, if I may, um, that the safety and healthcare systems around the world, um, the best examples probably are in some of the larger health uh, groups in the United States, uh, places like the Cleveland Clinic, Johns Hopkins. I mean, they are really mini health systems because often there is a large uh, teaching hospital, but then there are many other some uh, hospitals and community facilities, some of them indeed in other parts of the, of the United States. And, and they've got there, I think, largely through the quality of clinical leadership. Um, the doctors and nurses, to some extent, are, are much more willing to, to take on managerial roles than sometimes they are in this country. And so that hands-on clinical leadership is one thing. The use of data is another fa feature which is much less common in this country than it is in some of those 
those demonstrations and the involvement of patients and families in the running of the institution. And I could point you to four or five places in North America which, which are much better at keeping their patients safe than we are and they have features like that involved. Um, on the question of the, what to do about the deep-seated um, differences between us and other high-risk industries, I mean, the obvious thing to say is that we don't really educate people. As I said, we don't train in teams. We don't simulate situations. But I would say a different, make another point which is even more fundamental. When I first started uh, this work on safety and when I go to international meetings now, I say to, to people, you, we are the enthusiasts. We are, some of us are the academics. We are the people passionate about this. What's happening in the mainstream? And I would say that the big difference between other industries, like the airline industry, and healthcare worldwide is that it stayed largely with the enthusiasts and the academics, quality and, and, and safety as well. It isn't, uh, it isn't lived and breathed by every member of staff. It just isn't. And what percentage penetration there is, I'd be surprised if it was anything like 20% of people who had the sort of passion and the enthusiasm and the interest uh, that... Um, that you would see in other industries. And then quickly, on the spread across organizations, well, um, I guess we have to go back to our friend Rogers who did the, the diffusion curve, which you, you'll be well familiar with, of the early adopters and, the, and then through the majority through to the laggards. And basically, his message from that, that all of those studies was that it, it's a social thing, that it's to do with individuals influencing other individuals rather than anything that we can do technocratically to achieve change. How about sort of mechanisms like checklists and... Uh, yeah, well, that's standardization of practice. Yeah, that's definitely... Uh, that, that standard operating procedures checklists, that would definitely help. And as I said in the lecture, that's not uh, easily accepted. And though, though the, we did, through the WHO, introduce the surgical operating theater checklist, it's helped, but it's not done properly everywhere. And the anecdotal feedback you get from different parts of the world, surgeons refusing, they say it's childish, uh, people filling them out in advance before they even start the day. So you've got to... It's got to be, you cannot implement anything technical like that without the cultural change going in alongside it. Can we get three more questions in before the end? Uh, yes, one. Hello, um, my name is Maggie Brooks. Um, I've had a complaint with the Ombudsman over uh, from 2011 to 2018, which in the end was unresolved, and I uh, walked away from it because um, I thought I was better off getting a second inquest than staying within the Ombudsman system. And this could be my misunderstanding of how, of, of, as Mr. Behrens was saying, about how uh, complainants misunderstand what the Ombudsman can offer. And you, I, I have, do have, sometimes I don't understand the maladministration. If you're dealing with maladministration, which was always your major remit, why are all these deaths and injuries going to the PHSO? Dame Julie Meller said, 
when someone makes a complaint, there's a wall of silence. Bernard Jenkins says, um, if you make a complaint, the shutters come down. I believe Mr. Berenger said something similar at that same meeting, that there isn't really an NHS complaint system. That being the case, the PHSO is not the last resort for complaints about death and injury. It's the first and only resort. So people do come there with a, a, a feeling that they want more than a finding of maladministration. They want a thorough investigation of their relative's death. And that is something the Ombudsman cannot offer in the round. It cannot offer it because it, it, it isn't set up to look at, to take into account. You may have been beside your dying relative. Your evidence is not taken into account. So it's not a, an in and around. Um, it's not able, I, I don't blame the Ombudsman for not being able to do it, but I feel they should accept that they cannot deal with all these deaths and injuries without causing terrible distress to the people who have to hang on for eight years hoping somebody's going to investigate. Fortunately, I've got a second inquest now, and hopefully that will bring the facts to light, and perhaps there'll be a, a future, but eight years? You know, come on. Okay, thank you. I mean, perhaps, perhaps that relates to some of the legislative constraints. Any, any more questions? Yeah, um, my name's Scott Morris. Um, I had six years of experience of the complaint system. Um, I just wanted to make an observation more than ask a question, actually, which was that with the Medical Defence Union in the room and HCIB and NHS England and the Ombudsman, it's quite a good room full of people as, alongside some complainants. Um, but one of the inhibitors, as I see it, is fear in the system, and that's fear of hierarchy. It's fear of regulators. It's fear of shame when it hits the headlines. And I actually think the system as a whole, including everybody just mentioned, needs to focus on getting the fear out of the system so that we aren't, aren't forced into these sorts of adversarial contexts. But in, that con in, in the context of the Baragaba case, for example, um, letters are being sent to doctors telling them not to put reflections in writing as advice that helps them avoid those kinds of scenarios for themselves. In my own case, I know the Medical Defence Union told my GPs not to talk to me once it became a complaint because of the possibility of harm that may f flow for them. And I, I think really, if, unless the whole system can start pulling all, everybody in the same direction in, in the interest of patient safety and staff welfare to make it open and actually safe to admit that stuff has gone wrong, and we will support you through the process that follows rather than threatening you with punishment that could in include prison or shame, then perhaps we'd have a, a better chance of all of the components of the system having an easier ride in helping people like Maggie and Della and everybody else. Hi, um, my name's Ruth Dean. I'm the head of patient safety at uh, South London Hospital. Um, I just You've uh, talked about how the air accident investigation uh, branch has um, managed to improve health uh, air safety and that has been because of a reduction in the hierarchy and flattening the hierarchy um, and I just wonder if you've any idea as to how we could possibly flatten the hierarchy within the healthcare system. You want to start off on this? Yeah, I, I think I can be brief. Uh, addressing the points made by Ms. Brooks, um, 
ombudsman are no different from any other profession in that sometimes they get things wrong and trying to pretend that that doesn't happen and trying to run away from it is not a useful occupation and it in the situation that you describe it has led to a lot of wasted time when you could have been doing something else and I'm not going to pretend otherwise about that I do not accept that it is impossible to do an effective investigation but that has to be on the basis of highly skilled uh, invested in case handlers who get support for development from their organization okay uh, as far as uh, what Scott Morris has said I'm in 100% agreement if there was more talking amongst those who have responsibility for dealing with this on a system-wide basis then there would be a demystification of what's going on and you know without laying it on with a trowel you have played an important role in trying to get people to talk to each other as far as that's concerned so I'm all in favor of that I think that's what our open meetings and our new strategy is about trying to demystify and share our problems with other people so that we don't pretend that we're right about everything and that also goes to my colleague from the Medical Defense Union you know I don't want to meet you in the Court of Appeal uh, where we're spending thousands of pounds on legal representation which may not be in the interest of the patient that is a waste of public money <coughs> and if there was a more effective dialogue uh, and if there was more mediation and early resolution then it would be possible to reach resolutions which sensible people could accept are there, are there formal institutional things that can be done as well as just you know, the opportunities for dialogue um, of course I mean uh, the point I've been quoted of saying that there is no effective system of complaint handling in the NHS and you know you need to treat that with care there is a system of complaint <coughs> handling it's done by good and honorable people but it's not consistent it doesn't replicate itself across the health service it's different in different institutions and therefore it's not really a system in that respect we can't reform that on our own but if we sat around the table as we're trying to do with the bodies in jurisdiction the regulators there's an opportunity for us to come to a consensus about what constitutes an effective system of complaints handling which is in my interest because I want bodies in jurisdiction to solve the problems before they come to us it's a waste of people's time to have to go from uh, one regulator to another so of course if we sat round a table and discuss these things it is perfectly possible to make it better than it currently is the issue of fear uh, or sorry yeah no I was just go well I'll pick that up but I, I was just going to because I know you were getting close to our deadline I just wanted to say two things the first one is that 
I've just finished or almost finished the field work for um, a study we've done at the World Health Organization, in-depth interviewing of 15 patients around the world, families around the world, who've suffered serious harm. And the, the report will come out sometime next year, but the most striking conclusion of all is that victims of harm encounter the same phenomena whichever healthcare system they're in. Cover-up, denial, rejection, and in the care itself, not listening to a mother when a child is obviously dying. And I make that point for one very simple reason. What I'm not saying is, don't worry about the NHS because it happens everywhere. I'm saying the opposite. I'm saying there is something so deep-seated about health cult the adverse features of healthcare culture that it transcends uh, health the design of healthcare systems entirely. And then my second point is a very brief story. One of the patients that I've worked most closely with a woman called Margaret Murphy, a wonderful person in Ireland whose son Kevin died at the age of 21 through a, a catalogue of errors, basically where he had a life-threatening condition um, and it was missed features ranging from a missing post-it note to the failure to take test results. And in the end, he died at the age of 21. And she's been one of the greatest and most um, passionate and compassionate advocates. And I've heard her tell her story many times, but I was talking to her recently, and she told me something that she hadn't said before in any presentation. On the day that Kevin died, the family came back to collect his effects, and they were sitting in the lobby of the hospital waiting for their transport. And the junior doctor who had been caring for Kevin at the end of when he actually died, which was the final stage of his illness, which hadn't been diagnosed, saw them and came down and sat beside them to talk about Kevin. But before he sat down, he did one thing. He took off his white coat and he threw it in the floor before he sat down. And that, to me, is such a powerful statement of what the right culture should be in healthcare. He took his white coat off and he threw it down on the floor. I am your equal and let's talk about this tragic loss together and how terrible it was. And it's the draining out of of key people, I, I taught medical students for years. They come in, young men and women, off the street, as it were. They're dripping with compassion. And the education system and the way that healthcare is delivered, under the pressure it's delivered, it squeezes the compassion out of far too many of them. And that's part of our problem. Reasons to be optimistic? <laughs> I've been too pessimistic. <laughs> well, what I'm trying to do is to say that it's down to us. We've got to change things. Okay, well and I think we can. But that, that energy, that passion has got to be instilled, and that's down to leadership. A, a, a lovely and poignant note to end on. So uh, please uh, um, join with me in thanking our two uh, excellent, wonderful speakers tonight, Liam and, and Rob. Uh, and <laughs>
Thank you for listening to Radio Ombudsman. We would love to know what you think, so please leave a review or comment. If you like what you hear, please share and subscribe to future episodes.